We are here today with Ricky Williams. Yes, the Ricky Williams. Uh, one of the most iconic running backs, in my opinion, and probably a lot of people's opinions to ever play the game. Somebody who, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's laughing, but it's true from my perspective. And if somebody were to come to me with any number of football players who I watched growing up, my response to wanting to interview them might not be completely enthusiastic just because although I love football and I played football, if that's going to be the scope of the conversation, meh. However, Ricky is somebody who I always felt a connection to when I was growing up and watching him as somebody who seemed to think differently, follow the beat of his own drummer to some degree, didn't use football to craft the entirety of his identity and I think serves as a role model for a lot of people who play sports but also have more going on that they feel they need to express or seek. So with that being said, that's my short synopsis of, yeah. you know, how I sort of think about you and, and your unique place in football. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was laughing because um, <laughs> the, the word iconic. Yeah. You know? And I think it's, it's difficult to be iconic if, if it's only about what you do on the field. Right. And I think of iconic athletes – I think right now in, in football, you got Tom Brady, yeah. who's been great for a long time. He's got like six Super Bowls. I think basketball, um, Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know? And so for me, like I've realized, you know, I didn't have the desire and the kind of commitment to be a Tom Brady or a Michael Jordan just from what I did on the field. I had a lot of talent, yeah. but I saw my opportunity to be an icon was through using the platform that my athletic ability gave me to, to have a, a bigger message than just football. Yeah. And it's exactly like you said. I mean, if everyone, you know, that recognizes me on the street only wants to come and talk to me about football, it's great, but it's a limited range of, of who I am and, and what's possible when two people interact with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I do, when I think of the word icon, because I try to not use that term lightly. Everybody can't be an icon and really – when I think of, you know, football players who I put in that category even, especially limited to, like, players who I actually watched in their heyday, very small number, yeah. you know. Barry Sanders comes to me, you know, like, really, or Mike Allstadt, as you're looking at his jersey out yeah. there. And um, that is kind of like, I was talking with Brendan the other day about how I'm never going to experience again, like, looking up to a football player. So you're, uh, you graduated in 99, 98. Okay. Yeah. So you're a few years older than me. Mm -hmm. I graduated in 01. So, like, it was right at the peak. I didn't play football. I didn't know or understand football until I was a freshman playing in high school. So, like, those first few years of watching and understanding the game because I'm playing it finally, that was probably the most intense, you know, from, from a spectator's point of view that I'd ever been at a football. So you just happen to, like, coincide, you know, with that time frame. But I think also – and I'm, you know, saying all this because I'm talking to some younger guys. I'm like, oh, I got Rick Williams on today. And they're like, who? And I'm yeah. like, oh, oh, it hurts. <laughs> you know, not that I couldn't give them an education on you, but <clears throat> somebody asked me, I was like, let's just say the University of uh, Texas football field is named after him, yeah. right? So of all the players <laughs> that went there, and I do think, although, you know, you crushed all the records for, for yardage while you're there, it's not just about that. 
as you alluded to, and I just, what really drew me to like, cause I remember watching you growing up and just seeing, it must've been snippets of your interviews, but I always felt like that would be a guy I'd want to talk to, which like, you're just not going to have that sensation talking to a, a pro athlete or like looking at a pro athlete on TV, even just because they may be dumbing themselves down to be diplomatic or yeah. saying the right thing because yeah. of the media coach. So I was like, this guy's not afraid to like, just speak his mind, but not even in a like, I'm speaking my mind and I'm brash and I'm courting controversy. You just seemed reflective. Yeah. Would you say that's fair? Oh yeah, yeah. it's it's fair. And that was my target. You know, if someone said, you know, when I was a kid, do you want to be famous? And I said, yes. And they said, why? And I'd say, so I could have interesting conversations with people. <laughs> you know, because yeah. being, if I'm being real, being a, you know, growing up in Southern California, being African American male, it wasn't like everybody was open to just want to have right. an interaction with me. But yeah. I realized if I'm famous, then, you know, it, it kind of eliminates all the anxiety and stuff and makes it easier for people to want to interact and appreciate who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a really interesting answer because I think most kids at some point or most humans like fantasize about being famous but if you were then to take it a step deeper and go now why do you want that yeah that's mm. a pretty unique answer i feel like it's sincere and i also feel like i can relate to it because as i you know i get a few instagram followers what i really enjoy about it is that people reach out to me like from all over the country or the world or i go with brendan on tour and meet people who like know me there so it's like i've got this tiny uptick you know in notoriety compared to what you experience being like a literal global superstar but that to me is one of the biggest perks is like i get to connect with people who already have this common interest because if you're watching football that's a common interest yeah or anything else that you're doing you get to engage and sort of skip a little bit of the small talk and i was going to ask you too that reminds me i know you've talked a lot about social anxiety and your diagnosis of that it's something i think about a lot like what that even means you hear it quite a bit and often from people who i feel like there are personality similarities to like the people i can think of who will claim to have social anxiety and usually those people are perhaps more introverted perhaps more thoughtful perhaps don't enjoy small talk as much as in-depth conversations so like i almost see it like in part is a deficit or an aversion to small talk, you know, because if you just plant me and like, you know, talk to 15 strangers, like I'd want to go and I would want to have a shortcut to the in depth. Yeah. But the messing up the small talk would give me anxiety. <laughs> so how would oh you describe God. social yeah. anxiety? So, I mean, I, I, obviously I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And, and first I want to start off with the idea of a diagnosis. Yeah. You know, um, is that the, the whole idea of a diagnosis is that so we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Diagnosis means to see through. Yeah. So it's to see clearly. And so when I, when I got my diagnosis for social anxiety disorder, that's the way I saw it, is that, okay, I can identify what's going on, not so that I'm stuck with it, so that I can do something about it. Right. Okay. So if, if viewing a diagnosis that way, now we can break down social anxiety. Social means being around other people. Anxiety means I'm anxious. Okay. Yeah. So exactly what you said. Introverts, people that uh, the word that that I like to use, sensitive. Yeah. Sensitive, and sensitivity means you have an openness to something. Right. Okay. An openness to something, and so if I'm sensitive to, um, let's say I'm sensitive to pollen. 
Yeah. Okay. Then we call. So we say we have an allergy. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I'm around pollen and I, and I start sneezing. Okay. What do I do? I either take pills before I go around pollen, or I stay away from pollen, or I do something to take care of myself. Yeah. Okay. So social anxiety. I was in a social environment that gave me anxiety. The anxiety not being something inherently wrong with me, but being information about maybe I shouldn't be hanging around these people. Right. Maybe I'm being sensitive to people who are not in a position or have the ability to honor my sensitivity. Right. So the way I addressed it, social anxiety, is I started hanging around different people. Mm -hmm. And as I started doing that, I realized the anxiety went away. So it's information. Social yeah. anxiety is information. And yeah. if you're a sensitive person and you don't like small talk, don't hang around people that do like small talk. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, no, I agree. It's simple. It, it really is. I do agree. You know, it's like the same thing. You know, my son has a lot of food allergies and he learned early, right? The food that I'm allergic to, if I don't want to, <laughs> if I don't want to get sick, I don't eat it. Yeah. You know, and I think we have to empower ourselves to recognize what is good for us and what is not. And I think the, the, the epidemic of anxiety is people don't take care of themselves, you know, mm -hmm. and it's. And for me, it was about even though I was a big, tough football player and making a lot of money, being in an environment that wasn't very good to me, I had to make decisions to take care of myself. Yeah, I, I really like the way you put that. And it makes me think about how I can meet a stranger and within two minutes, you know, jump into something where if you're aligned and um, I was trying to get you to take, I don't know if you've ever taken the Myers-Briggs personality test. Mm -hmm. You have, what is your... Uh, uh, I think I was the ENTJ. Okay, really? Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, mm -mm. INTJ. Okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> um, just because ENTJs typically want to, like, they can't help but almost boss people around, not even in a bad way, it's just like, they'll come up with the idea and then want to implement it themselves, mm -hmm. INTJs are kind of like, I'm going to do this by myself unless I have to. Yeah. You know what I mean? But they're extremely competent. They're extremely, um, like, one of the nicknames is the mastermind or yeah. the architect. So yeah. they think through all these possibilities. Actually, my older brother is an INTJ, and he is such an amazing problem solver. He's like a math PhD, computer science guy. I've, I visited him. He lives in Rhode Island. We went to Rhode Island this weekend on tour, and I surprised him. He didn't know I was coming, and I just showed up at his doorstep. And his reaction was like, "Oh wow, hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah." So it's like, yep. fun, like, but I, you know, maybe when I was younger, I'd go, "Your affect is like underwhelming. I need you to be, you know, like I need you to be the same as me," which yep. I think a lot of people probably do. Like, why aren't you like me? Yeah. But as I've grown to love him and accept him and understand him more, it's it's like. I knew that was going to happen, whatever, and it's just part of him, and you want the, that kind of thing. Maybe it upsets you, like, oh, I wish you would have been, yeah. like, oh, wow, but yeah. in a crisis, or when, when shit hits the fan, he's going to be the guy who's still calm and going, yeah, you need to do X, Y, Z, and not losing his shit. Yeah. So maybe that's something you relate to. That's beautiful. <laughs> you know, just, just the idea, to me, it comes back to the idea of value. In mm -hmm. my whole life, I've always wanted to provide value. Yeah. And I think that that's what I wrestled with so much with football, because... I was getting paid a lot of money and receiving a lot of attention, but yeah. ultimately the value I was delivering to people was, was more of a distraction. Right. And I've heard you mention that before. I thought that was really interesting because like, I think there's some core things again that I'll relate and I'll try to not make this like, yeah, me too, but it's my way into understanding you. I do think about, you know, 
the varying levels of creative output that I have maybe. And I like I have things in yeah. mind where I'm like, I know, ugh, like I have this thing in mind and I know maybe doing a funny sketch or like a funny little thing. It's like, it's people like it and reward me for doing it. But I go, but I do have this desire to go deeper or like make a bigger impact. Yeah. And, and it's okay to strive for that. But with football, I think about what you emerged from and how like, there are possibly the strongest incentives in the world to make you not think twice about what you're doing. Yeah. Because you have all the attention, adoration, you're an American male in society who really values a, a like football player who's the focal point of the attention you're being paid for. Like, ev you, could, you could find 10,000 people to surround yourself with who'd be like, you're, you're doing everything right, don't ever question what you're doing right now. Yeah, yeah. That's what made it tough. And, I, you know, in the context of being on the football team, I was definitely providing value to the team. Yeah. But I started as I got older, you know what happens, started to mature. I started to think more than about myself. Yeah. Started to think about what, what impact am I having on my community. Yeah. And that's when I connected to I said, if I really do the math, mainly I'm just distracting people because even <laughs> the things that I do have to offer yeah. that I think are of value, it, it, you know, people, it's hard for them to receive it because I'm wearing a football helmet because I'm in the guise of a, of a football player. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't sit well with me. I realized I had so much more to offer the world from what I've learned as a football player than just yeah. scoring touchdowns. Yeah. And so I started, to, but I realized it didn't have the, the training and the experience of how to offer my skills other than as a football player. Yeah. So I, I became obsessed with learning. Yeah. And it was strange because, you know, as a football player, I kind of I was the smart football player. But still, I, I didn't read. I didn't, you know. Right. I, I didn't educate myself. I was just happened to be smart so I could pick things up. Mm -hmm. But to consciously say this is something that this is an area of life where I'd like to know more, where I'd like to improve and then mm -hmm. to pursue that that information. One, it was great for my confidence that I could acquire yeah. a different skill. Because I think that one of the hardest things for for professional athletes or even collegiate athletes when they when they leave their sport yeah. is they've we've developed this t to such a high level and we've devoted so much time to this one thing, it's kind of daunting to think of I have to start over absolutely and try to get to that level again. Yeah, but but pursuing you know my my educational interests really gave me the confidence that I could learn anything I wanted to learn and I could become just as good. At anything I was passionate about than I than I did at football. Yeah, and, and you were in when you officially stopped playing. Uh, 2012 was it? 2012. Yeah. So you were in your 30s, right? Yep. And that is a difficult time. Like if you're going to pick up a new skill, you know, as time passes and as you sort of build your identity around other things, um, it does become more difficult. I think to force it or like just to accept the fact that you're going to suck at something for a while, yep. or you're going to be a non-expert when you know you especially a guy like you where you've sort of achieved like the pinnacle of comp competence in some ways yeah. in your field to to reject that and start anew is is daunting but uh, i was going to say with regards to the schooling and the reading and stuff and i think that's another thing that i relate to where i was like as a young boy like i had to to discover for myself that i really enjoyed reading the things that i wanted to read because yeah. in school they're always telling you read this book and i'm like this book bores me to tears. <laughs> you can give me goosebumps or something I'm going to read through or whatever. But like, yeah. I think education should be geared towards almost like 
if you're a young boy with a lot of energy, like read whatever you want as long as you're reading because you get this in your head that like, oh, I don't like reading. Yeah. And then wait, uh, the smart kids are reading, so I must be done or whatever it yeah. is. But um, I don't know, you've talked about like, competing academically with other kids where like I was in the advanced stuff until it kicked in where the other kids like had more resources than I did. Yeah. You know, because that's something that is, I think one of the most obvious lasting, you know, systemic issues is like, and my mom was a teacher. So she saw it's like, look, I teach fifth grade and most of the kids are like Mexicans with their parents don't speak English. Like, there is no help from the parents. Yeah. They don't speak the language that the homework is in. So you're at a disadvantage. Um, it's not the exact metaphor here it's for you, similar. but yeah. It's similar, but even even deeper than that, and something that most people don't even acknowledge, is like the cultural assumptions are different. Yes. The, you know, different cultural assumptions. And so it, it's when we were educated in this system, we're expected to ascribe to certain assum- world p- paradigms mm-hmm. about how the world works. And if you're from a different culture, there's there's not always a, a matchup. And I think in a negative sense, it's we don't have the help in a positive sense. Say, like, you know, growing up the way I did, I'm I'm by bi- I'm not bilingual, but I'm bicultural. Yeah. You know that I grew up in one culture intermixed with another culture and I have the ability to move between. Yes. And I think this kind of, I think this is really the ultimate benefit of diversity, you know, right? because you get people from different backgrounds, you get different ideas. It stimulates creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I always think about this because I would assume like, you know, the California accent is sort of like flat anyway, but like I love accents. I love imitating accents. I like, I like hearing people speak in an interesting way and trying to imitate it. But what I always think about is like, if you're from New York and you've got this like thick Long Island accent and you can't change that, it's almost like a cue. It's like, I'm stuck here and I don't have any choice but to speak like the people around me in part. Then like, you know, again, that sounds judgmental, but I always think about like this idea of, I moved around a lot as a kid too. So that was part of like seeing like, oh, here at this school, this thing's cool. And then a totally different thing is over here. And then like skateboarding's cool here and rollerblading's cool here. It's all arbitrary. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's not like any one thing that is right or wrong. You saw how, you know, fickle things can be. And it just depends on where you are in the world that, you know, as a 13 year old, this is the most important thing to, to do or be or emulate. And you go a few hundred miles away and it's, it's something totally different. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- th- you know, that opens up a whole different like avenue of conversation it makes me think of you know you mentioned myers-briggs yes and i'm really into astrology and, and it's it's used in a similar way not yeah and not, that's why i brought it up because yeah. archetypes yeah like and i know you're into mythology and storytelling i see that as all related like our human desire to see the world through archetypes rather than this person this yeah. individual is yeah. pissing me off it's yeah. like well what kind of personality is that what are they what what might be the source of this conflict yeah so this is the idea of, of what i was saying earlier about value is i think that each of the archetypes mm-hmm. right are here for a reason that they each have a certain value yeah and if we can recognize and appreciate the value then we know how to use it but yeah. if we don't appreciate and recognize it then you know, we're going to misuse it. We're not going to, we're not going to yeah. be able to appreciate it and we're going to have conflict and dis- yeah. dis-ease with it. And you've probably experienced this a lot too, because I think, so here's a fun fact about INTJs that maybe you know, or maybe you don't, but they are overrepresented in movies as the villain. Yeah. 
because INTJs are seen as cold on the scale. If you push some of your traits further and further, you'd get to a sociopath where like, I'm an ENTP and maybe the extreme version that's a narcissist, yeah. you know, um, because if I have a good idea, I think it's like, like I'm, I'm prone to being like, isn't this the greatest idea ever? Um, and an INTJ stereotype sort of like cold calculating, which you want in some ways. And people will misread that. Like with my brother, it's like, huh, you must not like me because you're not like exploding in tears upon seeing me. But that's not the case at all. So I feel like of the personality types, you might be one of the more misunderstood ones. And I know for me, there's certain personality types like an ESTJ, which is somebody who's like, like a bureaucratic, you know, rule enforcer, which we need, you right. know, but you, you think of a guy who's like really good at enforcing the rules in a sort of, you know, pre-existing hierarchy where the ENTJ might like, he wants to create all the rules and implement them. The ESTJ is like this, you know, pass me the codes and the rules and we're implementing it. I'm going to butt heads with that guy because I'm the kind of person who's like, well, those are the rules. Well, we could we could do it this way. And we could do it upside down and backwards. So, you know, this idea of butting heads, can, yeah. you, can you imagine a situation where you guys could feed off of each other? Right. And yeah. that's, I think, understanding archetypes because that was like, when I'm in high school, I'd meet people like this and be like, yes, you know, F you, you're trying to boss me around or control me or make me feel stupid because, for example, like, I think each personality type has like, go-to ways of using humor yeah and a lot of ways that people use humor against me sometimes like oh my god you're stupid or like if i'm being silly they're like oh my god you're so dumb or retarded whatever it is it's like and then i'm like well, no i'm just being silly i'm not being but then you feel attacked even yeah. though they're like no i'm just joking around or if they're telling you what to do it's because they're uncomfortable with you like doing something unconventional and it gives them anxiety yeah right yeah and so if you understand that then you can be like, oh, right, you got a different brain than me, but you do a lot of things better than I do. And maybe I, you know, cover some of your deficits. Yeah. Well, it, again, I get, you know, I'm very sensitive to um, worldviews, paradigms, mm -hmm. and most people are not because we're, we're swimming in our paradigm. So it's difficult to have enough separation from it to perceive it. Yeah. And so this idea of, I mentioned earlier about being bicultural, the advantage is I can step away from my, my home culture and, and perceive it because I have a, a, another one to compare it to and I can observe the, the majority culture of, of the West. Yeah. So it, it gives me a unique perspective to be able to, to give some kind of commentary on it. And yes. first of all, to recognize it. And so this idea of deficiencies, when I'm good at, when I'm bad at, yeah. right? that's all part of a paradigm. Yes. You know, uh, Rumi, Rumi has a poem, you know, beyond ideas of right and wrong is a space, is a field. I'll meet you there. Yeah. Okay. That's a, an, another paradigm, more of a, of a Eastern perspective. Yeah. Right? So for me, I, I think of coming back to archetypes, all right? The, my understanding of archetypes, they're like the building blocks of the cosmos, building blocks of the cosmos. And as humans, we are part of the cosmos. So the idea of the same building block, the idea that we are the, we are the microcosm and the macrocosm, yeah. okay? And the same energies we see in the universe are the same energies expressing through us. Yes. Okay? Th this idea. And so if we can appreciate in nature, I remember I was playing for the Ravens my last year and I, I'd spent my whole career Grew up in San Diego, played in at the University of Texas in Austin, and played in New Orleans, and then played in Miami, all south. So yeah. 
not not really experiencing the seasons. Yeah. So I'm in Baltimore, and it's November outside, and I'm looking around. I remember the first month I got to Baltimore was in the summer. All the the trees were green, the leaves were there, and I'm sitting there, and the, all the leaves are falling off the trees, and I'm watching the leaves, and I'm thinking. Man, if this was human, if these were humans, right, they'd be upset, they'd be pissed off, they'd be, you know, crying, thinking something was going wrong. But the trees are fine because they know in the spring the leaves are coming back. Yeah. Right? That if we just if we just pay attention to nature, anything that arises in us is natural. Natural. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And if we if we can find the correspondence in the world around us, it can help us understand and not freak out. When things yeah. come up in our lives. Yeah. You know? And that the archetypes are part of a holistic system. And if we can recognize that harmony in nature, we can appreciate it inside of ourselves and we, and we can express that. Yeah. We, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Meaning like when we say deficiencies or whatever, to me, it's not a deficiency. It's a misunderstanding of who we are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm quick to use a word like that because, you know, to this day, there are people making me like like using words that might have a you know a pejorative connotation to make me feel like something's wrong and i also have the inner voice in my head saying no that's not a deficiency sometimes that wins and sometimes the other one yep. wins but there are definitely forces as you're saying in a culture that want to make something a particular quality um or a focus on something that you're good at at the expense of something else that somebody wants to go like oh you're bad at this like well i'm just not focusing you know on this um but i do agree that i like thinking <laughs> you mentioned you know the micro and the macro i always think about fractals and the shape of things and like sort of the geometry of something like and i think that's for stories too it's almost like if you watch a really good movie in every scene and every moment there's there's like the shape of that movie that the whole scene is built yeah. on and the whole act is built on and and that's really like in nature that's almost like one of these foundational things of like beauty is like a repeating pattern and also i've noticed um on psychedelic trips or whatever like you know if you take a bunch of lsd it's like what what is beautiful about the thing that you have if you were to have you know describe it to somebody who's never taken psychedelics when people would describe it to me before i'd taken it I'm like, oh, it sounds like you're having hallucinations, which is actually not true in my experience. Like, you're not just seeing a random pink elephant in front of you that you think is there. It's like there is a psychedelic overlay, which means patterns of colors and shapes that are like moving in like a beautiful way. But it's like a pattern that out, you know, and it's like, oh, that's why I like looking at that. It's beautiful. And it looks like something that's cohesive. We can use the word psychedelic and yeah. it brings something well, to mind. Even psychedelic, like this idea in there's a there's a movement going on in our in our country and i think it's beautiful except for me a, a psychedelic perspective is one where you don't necessarily need psychedelics to mm -hmm. trigger it really is what i think what you just the way you described it is great it's the ability to recognize patterns yeah patterns and i think the thing about psychedelics is it it loosens our grip on reality so yeah. that we have the ability to perceive more more and more subtle patterns yeah. and patterns that exist that transcend our, our reason in our yeah yeah because it is not just like it's not just about seeing something i always feel like and i think this is backed up by science you know like when they first started using lsd with like you know guys trying to get a phd in math and it would help them i do feel like there is a 
a term for it. <sighs> Latent inhibition comes to mind, which I think like marijuana and psychedelics can like, it lowers your latent inhibition so that, you know, these, th I mean, I, you know, it's, it's a necessity to survive that we tune out some things. And part of that's pattern recognition. Yeah. And I always feel like using, it, it can be a way into, and I think you've probably used this, but like with, with marijuana to like almost solve your own problems in some way or get the different perspective or whatever, because I've found, I've used marijuana a lot over the years, but it would always be something I'd mistake for like, oh, I like doing this with friends. And they're like, oh shit, no, I, I mostly like doing it by myself to kind of work through something, um, to see a pattern, to be removed from another influence yeah, and get a unique take. And, it, and is that how you used it over the, over the years? Or why do you keep coming back to that as a substance that you feel like is you know, beneficial to your life? Because I feel like it does facilitate my ability to perceive patterns. Yeah. And I just want to, one of the patterns that, that we're most sensitive to perceiving yeah. is a pattern of dis-ease. Yeah. So someone says something that doesn't feel good to us. We're, yeah. We're very good at recognizing those, <laughs> those patterns. Yeah. And, and recognizing those patterns blinds us to recognizing other patterns. Right. You know, meaning there's certain subtle patterns that because of our training as a child, we were thought are taboo. Like mm -hmm. the pattern of recognizing when I consume this, you know, things make great more sense to me. Yeah. Oh, there's some value here. But the pattern of this is wrong, you will get in trouble. Yes. That That's drilled into us at a very yeah. young age. Yeah. And I think when we psychedelics, cannabis, right, it unlocks those those more superficial patterns and gives us access to the deeper patterns. Yeah. Okay. Here's what I mean by that is. Um, so in, in Ayurveda. Um, we, we have this concept of Vrikruti and Prakriti. And the difference is Prakriti is our nature. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, if I'm talking to someone about their birth chart, I'm saying this is your, your birth chart. This is the, the pattern that you were born with, these yeah. ingrained patterns. Yeah. But it's nature versus nurture. This is your nature. But as soon as we're born, okay, our nature starts interacting with the environment, our parents, our culture, the time we live in, yeah. our siblings, right? All of that. And that becomes the nurture. And because of our nature interacting with this, we develop certain patterns, yeah. certain habits. Okay? Yes. And, and it's important to understand the distinction between our nature and what has been done to our nature since we were born. Because I think part of what the, the psychedelic revolution is giving us access to that deeper pattern, our nature, so that we can undo or unwind all of the ways we've been twisted by yeah. our upbringing. Guys, first of all, thanks to everyone who shopped at Oak and Stone over the Black Friday sale, their most successful Black Friday sale ever. And you can still get stuff on the site using my discount code, uh, HELLA, for 10% off. So right now I'm wearing this black short sleeve button up you know it's winter time so i'm showing you how i layer my oak and stone i got the black on black with the red and black and the black heisman beanie on it all works okay i just saw a picture of myself with ricky williams and the haters can't say anything about this outfit so if you want to look like me and make oak and stone a foundational layer in your wardrobe selection for the day Go to oakenstoneclothing.com, use code HELLA for 10% off at checkout. Send me a pic of that fit, bro. You're probably wondering, Mark, you are so focused on this interview asking such good questions of Ricky Williams 
how you doing it? Well, the answer is simple. I use Happy Hippo Kratom. Happyhippo.com. I use promo code THICKBOY with three C's for 20% off for life. And this stuff, along with all this Heisman marijuana I'll be smoking later, keeps me fueled for these intense interactions. Yeah. And it, it is one of the things that I notice. Um, for example, I might take LSD and some of the things that I'll notice are like... I'm less concerned about wearing a shirt in a place that I might want to, right? So that's like one little, you know, pattern of behavior. Um, I, certain conventions I will let go and I feel like, as you say this, shame almost must be a, like that has to be one of the biggest like tools that people use to enforce taboos and like societal conventions, it, you know, it's versus. The way, it's the way it manifests, but it, it's more of a, a function of feeling safe. Yeah. You know, so in astrology, we call it Saturn, but the idea of, of sur it's the survival mechanism. Yeah. And, and the research shows that the thing that a, a, a newborn needs more yeah. than anything is the love of some adult to make yeah. sure that they take care of the newborn. Yeah. And so doing what the people in charge tell you to do, yeah. right? It's a survival mechanism. Yeah. And we need it to survive. Yeah. Right? So if we do something that the people in charge don't like, right? Yeah. We learn to cut that shit out right away. Yeah. And we have to repress it. We have to push it down somewhere. Right. And so it becomes Sh it manifests as shame, but it's really a survival mechanism. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never heard somebody put it like that, but Another thing that I'm thinking about as you say that is like to truly unpack that. I mean, you got to go way back. Like you have to go back as far as you can recall to sort out the things that you had an instinct to do and somebody told you not to. And maybe that never gets resolved. Not really. No, okay. you don't have to go back at all because it's still living inside of us. Right. <laughs> it's just it's about recognizing yeah. the inner sensor. Right. Yeah. And it's it might be a parent, might be a teacher, might be society It's to recognize that voice. Right. Like the voice of I want to wear this shirt. No, you, you can't. Yeah. Recognizing the two of the two voices. And then once you recognize this one, you say, oh, you'll recognize the teacher or society. You'll recognize it. Yeah. And then you have a choice. Do I listen to that voice? Is it does it have my best interest or would I really like to wear the shirt? And then you figure it out. Yeah. And and that is something I think about, like the psychological process of somebody doing marijuana or psychedelics. And I know I've heard you say that you don't like tell people to do it. You'll give your experience. You'll say, this is what I benefit from it. Um, but I really related to that. Cause I'm like, I'm here to like clear up any misconceptions about anything that I put in my body. And I've researched and, and become, you know, at least, uh, uh, you know, more expert on than I was before. I'm really never on a mission to try to get anybody to do it, but there are so many misconceptions about so many different things. And one of the things I notice is that like weed in California, for example, I remember like smoking a joint before going to see a movie and I'm with some friends from out of town and, and like we're in the car in the parking lot and they're like, like paranoid, like looking, I'm like, oh, you guys like, don't, you know, we're in LA and nobody gives a fuck. But that's a very common thing to like, be an adult who's like, I'm breaking the law right now, oh my God. And like, that's then going to color your entire experience. So the first step is almost like, you have to go to okay with yourself doing this, you know, and, and understanding that like, just because you have all these associations with it being a bad thing or, 
you know, LSD yeah. is going to make you crazy or whatever. You yeah. have to unpack that first because yeah. you don't, you know, it's going to come up otherwise. Yeah. And the nature of associations, and this is like the the magic behind behind my brand Heisman, is the, the associations is how many other things in our lives do we truly like feel and want to express, but we hide? Yeah. You know, and once, once you, at least for me, once I started to unlock the cannabis part and not mine unfolded in, you know, the national stage. Yeah. And, and the beauty of it was it forced me to look at all, you know, the, not all of them because there's so many, but the multiple ways I was hiding parts of myself. Yeah. You know, and it encouraged me not to hide those parts of myself anymore. Right. And there's, there's something liberate, hugely liberating about it. Absolutely. And because I assume that when you would smoke or consume cannabis in any way, like you would come back to that thought like about I'm because like I've I know I've been stuck on certain things like I'll smoke like to like relax and or something. And then I'm like, I'm coming back to this like conflict that like I know I need to take care of this because I keep I'll suppress it and then it comes right back up and I can I'm very clear on what the emotion is that I'm getting from thinking about that and did you feel like that was something you experienced so, like to to speak directly to the question around cannabis yeah I, I say it's a, it's a tool for attending to my mental health yeah and so how i describe mental health one of the things i know about mental is referring to what's going on in here mm -hmm. and i know if i'm out in the world and i'm too worried about what's going on out there i'm not attending to my what's going on in here and yeah. i noticed at the end of the day when i sit and roll my joint and smoke I become aware of what's going on in here. And that yeah. gives me the ability to attend to it. Yeah. You know, and like you said, I'm recognizing there's something that I've been repressing because it's getting in the way of what I'm doing out here that I need to attend to. Yeah. Right. And I can pay attention to when it comes up, you know, and attend to it or I can push it back down. Yeah. And my message with, with people is, you know, our tagline is spark greatness for yeah. two reasons. One, if you're hiding who you really are, you're never going to manifest. You're never going to express your greatness. Yeah. And so getting out of all the ju justifications we have for hiding who we really are, destroying all of those. Yeah. That's the that's the key thing. But how do we even get access to those? Right. For me, when I consume, I get access to these things that I've been burying. They yeah. come to the surface and with the right intention and the right attitude, I'm empowered to deal with them, to do yeah. something with them. And, and the other part about it is a lot of times when we consume because we, we we transcend and rise above the bullshit, we have access to brilliant ideas, ideas that are floating in the ethers, waiting for someone to grab a hold and make them real in the world. Yeah. And so telling people like when you consume and you get ideas not all of the ideas are going to be great but there, there's some there write them down and, and commit to you know the next morning when you wake up to do something about those things right and that's the key balance and I, I think you know so you're a great example of this Joe Rogan talks about this I would feel self-conscious because I you know I do totally relate to that statement but like you know anytime I hear somebody else being like I use pot to do this it's like, okay, that's cool. You know, like if it's that one part of it or whatever, it's if it's part of your process and it's not, you know, that's not the only way I think to go about those things as I'm sure, you know, you'd also offer that disclaimer, but I totally agree that it's like, this can be something that's provides that spark as you would say, um, and can allow you to, cause I always like, like marijuana, the, the recurring thing that I'll come back to it for is just being alone and thinking of something that I know I wasn't going to think of before and capturing that idea diligently and returning to it. But without capturing it or returning to it, it's it's just remains in the ether. Yes. 
exactly then i'd say that's that's destructive that's that's misusing wasting yeah. the opportunity yeah you know because I, I i say cannabis is the great escape you know yeah. right and, and not to make escape a negative thing because sometimes we right we're stuck in a prison and we need to escape okay <laughs> yeah. but the thing is when you escape are you escaping to run away from something because if you do when you when you come back right you're it's still there are you escaping to receive inspiration and if yeah. you're escaping to receive inspiration when you come back bring that inspiration with you because it's there for a reason you know it's like if tell the guys like if we're if we're stuck on a problem in the business you know i say like smoke on it right like like do do everything you can to to gather as much information gather the facts yeah okay and then allow your unconscious to to do the integration because yeah. yeah. our our conscious mind is wonderful at gathering facts but it can't reorganize them in a new way it can yeah. only gather the facts the deeper parts of ourselves our intuition our unconscious that's where all the integration work is done yeah and it's so hard in, in the western mind to shut off the objective mind you know I, I think so therefore i am like that's got us stuck in this paradigm in this pattern that the mind can figure everything out it can't yeah. It, it can gather all the data, but the integration comes from something deeper inside of us. And I think, you know, cannabis is medicine. I think it's treating something that we're all dealing with is the overactivity of our objective conscious mind. Yeah. And we need that balance. And I think hopefully as, as we integrate, we internalize our experiences with psychedelics, you know, we open it up. So the next generation and the generation after that, they don't need these substances to be able to create the balance. It's inherent in it because we nurture that and we, we pass that on to, to the younger people. Yeah, I think that's really cool. Uh, and, you know, part of that is speaking about, you know, like, because that was my read on things I've heard you say before is that you see this as, as a tool. It's not the be all end all. And I always bristle at people who kind of present marijuana as like, this is the magical thing and you need to try and this is going to solve all your problems. And, and some people kind of, I'm not quoting, but it's like that, they give that energy of like, this is what you need. And I like that you're having this ground to take on like, yes, ideally the future generations wouldn't be you know, using this, but we're still going for that same thing, um, which I believe is, you know, part of your message is like, finding meaning, purpose, yes. individuality, yes. you know, that, that has to come from you because ultimately, at, you know, especially as a man, up to, like you have to find your purpose and, and build your value, yeah. you know? Yeah, but the, the main thing I think sometimes it gets lost is that story doesn't exist separate from everything else around us, that it's, it's all together. Like who I am and why I'm born at this moment in this time is not accidental. Yeah. You know, that my work is to uncover and express my essence because the world needs it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been born. Yeah. You know, that's why this idea of deficiency, if I'm experiencing a deficiency, it just like social anxiety. It means that I'm in the wrong place because yeah. when you're in the right place. OK, even if even if you experience a deficiency, being in the right place is the right place is the place that can fill it. Right. If I'm hungry and there's a there's a refrigerator full of food in front of me, I'm in a good place. Yeah. Right? If I'm starving and I have no money and there's no food around me, right? <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's a really great analogy that I never thought of where it's like you're look at the emotion because hunger is ultimately like it's a sensation. I, I assume it could be considered an emotion just because it's like it's a feeling with inside your body, you know, and you could probably. It's the know, definition. Pinpoint. It's the definition of an emotion. 
emotion means something that puts you into motion. And when you're hungry, the point of being hungry is telling your body, like, I have a need. Like, go fill it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so with anxiety or whatever. It, and I like also that you're framing it uh, with all this stuff because you do hear when people tell you their things, their issues, like, we do often hear about it as an excuse. I can't come to this thing because I have social anxiety and I want sympathy. Or to, and, and I'm not saying that instinct is inherently bad, but I think ultimately you have to at some point frame it in terms of what can I do about it. I'm not a victim of this. It's information and information is, is neutral rather than you know, a deficit or a mental illness or you know, however yeah. you use those words. It can be yeah. colored yeah. in a different way. I think... Ultimately, the way I look at it, pain and pleasure, comfort, discomfort are information. They're not puni- It's not punishment or reward. Yeah. Something feels good. It means, okay, uh, it's good for me. I'll keep going until it stops feeling good. Something doesn't feel good. Ah, right. Maybe this isn't for me. Yeah. And I'm going to connect this to what you said about uh, different being bicultural and seeing different cultures. I always think about this with regards to like, if you're engaging in a political discussion or discussion about religion, which, you know, I love to do that. It's just not everybody is equipped to do that in the same way that I am because I've done the work to detach my emotions from having that conversation and having my own set of beliefs criticized. And I think that's like, if you have multiple cultures you've experienced, you're less likely to sort of be defensive or get emotional if, if you perceive an attack you know, on your own culture or beliefs or whatever. So would you say part of, you know, seeing things in a neutral information-based way is like learning to detach from like your identity being connected to this thing? Kind of, but I think it's important that your identity is connected, just not overly connected. Right. Like for instance, if I, if I experience someone attacking my beliefs, I don't get defensive. I experience it as them attacking my beliefs and i become (laughs) curious of huh what's so like and i'll say like is there something is there like what's what's coming up for you or is is like did that trigger something right because to me if if someone is getting emotional i feel the best i can do is reflect that emotion back to them so that they can handle it if i take it on they can't handle their emotion it turns into an argument right and that's what i try to actually if i engage people online like one of my favorite you know like little tactics to do is point out what the other person seems to be, just even if you describe what they're doing. Because if somebody, some people will attack you and I'll just be like, hey, I can see like you're a grown adult man who's typed my name into the search bar to come tell me that my face is ugly or, you know, whatever it is, like yeah. just put it in super blunt terms yeah. and then like force them to sort of give an accounting of like, hey, and why are you doing that? Yeah. <laughs> so but the idea of force, you know, just some stickler yeah. for words. Of course. Th- that's an interaction. The way, I, the way I would approach that is I would, honor what they are expressing Mm -hmm. you know because usually usually when someone is fighting for their perspective they have a valid perspective but what they're not acknowledging that's where the miss is and so i'll acknowledge i'll acknowledge like someone says you know you're ugly i'll say you're right that crosses my mind at least 20 times a day (laughs) and then they'll they'll laugh they'll laugh and then they'll say i was just kidding right 100 percent of the time yeah because my rebuttal is never like i'm handsome you know what i mean it's like I, I want to know why you're, you know, you feel like that's a good approach to interacting with people. They're not know? trying to interact. They're trying yeah. to get some, they're trying to express something. Yeah. And, you know, I, I realized the idea of, of 
getting people to like me in a way where I'm not sacrificing who I am. Yeah. It's just honoring honoring the, their right to express what they need to express. Yeah. And when I do that, again, they apologize without right. even me asking for an apology. Yeah. Because they recognize, oh, yeah, I just needed to get something off my chest. Why did I do it to them? I'm My bad. Right. I think that is a really interesting phenomenon. I've experienced that. You know, a, a handful of times, depending on the tack that I take. And even, you know, the, the name of this podcast, which is tongue in cheek, because I started captioning everything that I was posting with haters will say, like, ironically, like as a character of like, because what comes to my mind is like somebody who's really self-involved, like sees haters everywhere and sort of like almost like blames haters or the haters. Like, and it's like, uh, you know, it's a funny little thing I'm yeah. sure you've encountered too. Yeah. But, you know, when I started hanging out with Brendan, I inherited some of his actual, so I'm like, oh, you now people are actually coming to my page to tell me how terrible I am at acting, or that I'm stupid and ugly and worthless and a pseudo-intellectual, like, all these things, like a flood of actual harassment, and I'm like, but you got, like, I, I like, this is a joke, and you guys are, like, telling me how stupid it is that I capture my things, like, while being the hater that I'm talking about that was imaginary before. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but... I do think because the common wisdom too is like when people shit on you, just ignore it or whatever. And I'm like, uh, I don't like that. Like, I just don't. If that works for you, great. But I feel like it's one of these tropes that gets repeated. Like, just block them, just ignore them. And you're describing a method of interacting with people because, like, you know, maybe we can get back to that. Like, your experience of like being, because again, this is like, this is my version of this. I get a few people commenting on my page. You're a global celebrity doing things that seemingly would would piss people off or even uh <laughs> casey can we forget that the the picture that i sent you so here's something that i did for a sketch right and i saw you talk about your wedding the, dress. The, 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 the yes the wedding dress and i remember that happening but i hadn't heard you speak on it so when i saw what you had to say i was like exactly you were like oh i heard the idea and thought that's funny but for example, this is for a TV show and my other um, co-stars were uh, African-American and a lot of African-American males specifically will go, there's no way you're putting me in a dress because that means you're trying to emasculate me and make me like, you know, there's this sort of like, his, like Dave Chappelle talked about it on Inside the Actor Studio. And I get that I sympathize with it because you're like, if you fear this thing, this backlash and you're scared of that following you around because you put yourself in a dress one time but like i look at it and go like put me if it's funny like that's all i care about and <laughs> if you succumb to somebody like the fear of that it's almost like like you, what else are you letting dictate you know your impulses to like have fun or be silly yeah and so was there what was the backlash like from that or even like that period of your life when you had achieved this pinnacle of notoriety what did the backlash look like and was this surprising and how did yeah. you deal with it? Uh, yeah, the surprising was, it was surprising because I was young and naive. Yeah. Um, and also, and I don't even mean that as a negative thing. Yeah. In that naivete, it, it was this idea of what is the purpose of fame? Yeah. You know, is what I, and this is, this, this lesson, this cover taught me this very well. It's, realize when you're a public figure you're going to impact a lot of people yeah. and you can either shy away from it and be afraid of it or you can utilize it yeah and i i got into the point where i realized i'm gonna i'm gonna utilize it yeah and i don't take it personally i realize that i'm a symbol and so 
taking taking conscious ownership of that symbol. What would I like to symbolize? And and that's what I use to to filter all of my not all of them, but a large majority of my responses is one of the things I want people when they interact with me to, to have an interaction that they've never, ever had before is that when they walk away from talking to me, meeting me, is they're having thoughts run through their mind that have never run through their mind before. That's fruitful. You know, yeah. it's going to it's going to it's going to feed. It's going to nurture something in their mind that's been that hasn't been nurtured. And I think the greatest gift I can give to someone is say something to them or show them something they've never seen before. Yeah. You know? That's that's new information. Again, it's it's going to stimulate the mind. And so, you know, and I've put so much intention into that idea that it overrides any kind of personal hurt because it's not about it's not about me. It's about yeah. the difference that I have the ability to make. And I know even the temporary discomfort I feel when I see the bigger the bigger impact that I made, it, it, it overcomes that feeling. Yeah. And it turns into a positive thing. So now I positively embrace the haters because it's an opportunity to give someone a different experience. The reason haters are the the way they are is because they've had a, a certain habitual pattern of, of response. And I know that by giving them a different response, it has, it's the best opportunity to unlock that pattern of hating because we've all been trained to be haters. You know, yeah. our, all of our parents hated on us. You know, that's... <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. Like, every, if you can't, like, look at yourself and, and acknowledge, like, I have been a hater before. I've had an energy that I later look back and I'm like, man, that was sort of excessively critical or that thing that you said to that person really wasn't about them. It was about your emotions at the time and, and you know, jealousy, bitterness, anger at something, you know, else or them. You yeah. know, there's it's it's always a reflection of something else but um you know being on the receiving end of it at, f- at first at least it can be very confusing and, and y- you don't know how to like you know you got this wound and you're like oh my god i better take care of this bleeding i can't even think about like why'd you say that you know yeah, yeah. um yeah. but if you're inoculated enough to those experiences i think you can learn but so like if you've never had somebody shit on you on the internet or talk shit to you in person like the first time it happens, I think for a lot of people, it's like, oh, like it's stressful, you know, and it's surprising. And, and um, I like the fact that I've sort of like been slowly, you know, inoculated. This. It's great like, training. You yeah. know, it's, it, I, I think life, I think life is training. And so anyone that that has to deal with fame, it's yeah. the training to be able to like to claim who you are, because so many people, they get fame and they have all the expectations of other people. Yeah. Right. It, you know, that's I think that's why a lot of people fall because they, they lose sight of who they are and what's important to them because the, the sheer volume of other people's expectations is so heavy. But when you can learn who you truly are and you can still hear that silent whisper through all of the expectations, that's when you can actually truly provide value with the platform. Yeah. And, but it requires training to build that muscle to be able to withstand all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I like I know you've used that word whisper before. Um and this, this really resonated with me because I do feel like, you know, I think about I have cats and like they get active w- at night when it's most quiet because like, why is that like, well, that's when you can hear a mouse or like you're, you're listening to the faintest sounds oh. and that activates you the most. And so like if I'm up late doing something, I know that part of the appeal at least is like the general silence of something and then you can hear without things pulling you away you know, noise-wise or, or, you know, visually. 
you you can hear these whispers and i think that was just a resonant idea when i heard you talking about that like for yourself because many people probably i don't know if you don't have that built in somewhere you don't put that time aside like you can never sort of be listening to your own whispers yeah. if you're keeping yourself busy if you're never spending any alone time with yourself reflecting if you're just going from thing to thing and not checking in or, or, or assuming that like the voice you have to listen to is the loudest one yeah. because that's how often we're to like by parenting, whatever it's like, if yeah. I'm yelling, you got to listen right now. Yeah. But you, you know, even the whispers, I, I think the, the main training, and this is the whole point of meditation yeah. is to train your ear to hear the whisper, you know, meditation, the mind gets distracted, you bring it back, mind gets distracted, you bring it back. Eventually the habit, it stays there. And when it stays there, can hear the whispers clear crystal clear mm -hmm. but the other part of it is hearing other people's whispers okay yeah meaning or even when you're reading you ever notice sometimes if your mind is distracted you're trying to read and it's like i can't read all the time yeah. but when you're really tuned in when you're reading you're actually seeing things that are hidden in the words right yeah that's the whispers of the that's the whispers of the reading yeah yeah also when you're talking to someone and you know especially when they're yelling you know, they're yelling one thing, but you can, you're picking up the energy of what yeah. they're really trying to say. Yeah. That's hearing the whispers too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also something that like, I wouldn't say that I'm the most naturally or empathetic person, but I do think it's a muscle that you can develop over time because if you're in your own head a lot, like you're not spending a lot of time going like, just ask yourself the question, what would you be thinking and feeling if you were that person in that scenario? Yeah. And if you slowly build that muscle, then it can be more reflexive and intuitive. Um, and some people probably need to be less empathetic because it's so naturally, like if you are a, a very sensitive person. Um, Especially if, you, if you're born with a penis, you know, because the training is, is the women's job to be attentive to how we feel, it's yeah. not our job. Yeah. And so it, the training is to expect the women in our lives to take care of our feelings. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to ask you, like, because we've established that, like, and I, my read on you is the word, like you use the word sensitive about yourself and I would agree. And it's also this thing in society that's like some people still widely consider it a pejorative term like, oh, you're fucking sensitive. But I've always felt like, yeah, in certain ways I am, you know, sensitive to these experiences or whatever. And I, I know it's not a bad thing because most artists are sensitive, whatever. There is always this benefit to it, even though society can reward callousness. And I remember when I first started playing football, like I was a freshman and there was these guys, like seniors and they would like the hazing that went on, like you're getting thrown around, you're getting shit on. Like it to me was like callous behavior and it was rewarded because in that little hierarchy, you're gonna raise it to the top by like being a bully or being an asshole or whatever. And I always remember thinking like, these two things don't have to go hand in hand. Like you don't have to be an asshole to be good at football. And so I always made a point to be like, when I'm a senior, like I'm not gonna turn around and haze being like, be mean to them or like physically violent just for the sake of it. Um, and I think you're sort of the ultimate paradigm of like this, you were a big bruising running back in this contact sport and you weren't afraid to block people, et cetera. So like nobody could accuse you of just being like, oh, I don't want contact as a skill player, but also like that was secondary to you weren't playing football because you were like this aggressive guy who needed to physically harm people. You were actually, just like, I, I was, okay. I was, I, I was unaware two, of that. Two things I, yeah. I was, and I'll explain it differently. Yeah. But the one thing is I think sensitivity is a pejorative word. Yeah. But, but it's about perspective. Like for me, my sensitivity is necessary for my happiness. If I'm not sensitive, 
I'm mm. going to be miserable and cranky. Yeah. Okay. But to the people around me, my sensitivity is not a pleasant thing. Right. Because it forces them to be to be accountable for the for their part of the interaction. Yeah. You know, and if, if I just want to express something or I want to do something and someone is sensitive, then I have to like it, it causes me anguish because I have to modify my expression to take the other person's sensitivity into consideration. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Like that accusation in of itself is a way for to be like, I don't want to deal with your sensitivity yes. right now. You're so sensitive. Yeah. It should sort of be a more neutral word, but it's a way of being like, yeah. how dare you point out that I was, you but, know. But part of it is like, you know, what I've realized is it's up to me to decide the people that I spend my time around. And people who appreciate my sensitivity are the ones that I spend time around. Yeah. People who don't appreciate my sensitivity, part of my sensitivity and taking care of myself is yeah. I don't spend time around those people. Right. And did that take you a long time to like drop the feeling of obligation to mm -mm. hang around those people mm -mm. okay mm -mm. it was really really, <laughs> it, was really <laughs> it was really easy yeah. because i prioritize feeling good yeah and it's not a narcissistic idea it's if i don't feel good i have nothing good to right. offer anyone right if i feel good everyone around me is going to feel good because yeah. it's going to extend it's going to come off of me yeah and so people that that appreciate my sensitivity all of them are rewarded yeah yeah. yeah. And so it's me taking responsibility for my home life, my inner life by the people I keep in my inner circle. Yeah. And do you mind uh, elaborating on when you say, oh, in fact, I was drawn to football because of aggression or desire for yes. violence or whatever? Yes. Because I'm really interested in that dichotomy, I guess, in you where you have that and you're excelling in this thing that like if you were to just sort of you know, not looking, I'm just hearing you talk. I'm like, this doesn't sound like, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, awarded uh, uh, NFL running backs of all time, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like those two things maybe people wouldn't assume exist in the same person. Yeah. So, so back to the idea of archetypes, yeah. okay? So the way that Carl Jung thought about it, archetypes exist in the unconscious. And they're, they're the, the batteries or the driving forces underneath all phenomena, all right? And so... And the, the beauty of astrology is it gives us an, it's an archetypal language. So when I'm talking to someone about their Mars, I'm talking about the archetype. Uh, the, the ancient Greeks called it Aries, okay? Mars, what the yeah, Romans yeah. called it. It's our, it's our need to assert, to fight, to challenge, and to defend ourselves, right? It, we all have it, all of us. Yeah. Otherwise, we would get run over. We, would, we wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be able to survive. Yeah. And some people have that archetype in greater volume, Okay, they have a need for act activity, competition. In my chart and me, I have that archetype very strong. Right, the moon is the, is what we've been talking about is the archetype of the mother, mm -hmm. sensitivity, the, the need to nurture. I also have that archetype very strong. Yeah. And so this idea of two archetypes by their nature conflicting, very powerful in my unconscious. They both need to express themselves. The struggle I have in life is how do I express both of them? Right. The tendency is, you know, as a guy, you know, as African-American male, right, who's pushed towards sports, right, I'm going to naturally gravitate more towards this one. So it's going to have easier expression. The more sensitive, nurturing side of myself because of the way I look doesn't get as much expression, doesn't get as much expression. But in order for me to be happy, I have to find a way to integrate those and express them. And so uh, the way I would say it is, you know, you have a little kid who has a lot of 
a lot of energy and, and you know gets in fights all the time put them in sports it's an outlet for that archetype not only to express itself but to gain to receive training so it learns to express itself constructively you know because the same energy of, of getting into a fight and being violent is the same energy of picking up that linebacker on the outside blitz or hitting the hole at the right time with enough energy to get into the end zone yeah. but it's a it's a more constructive expression of that archetypal energy yeah uh, yeah, I really like that. And so when, I, when I'm talking to a woman and I see a woman with a strong Mars, the first thing I say is you were born at a disadvantage, you know, yeah. and I kind of laugh and I say uh, what I mean is, you know, is that our culture, you know, teaches that women don't have women don't have us aren't passionate, aren't lustful, aren't aggressive. And so all of the messages, most of them, unless your dad's a football coach, right? <laughs> most of the message that you're getting from the world is a part of you isn't allowed. And so how do you find a way to express that? Oh, you attract, you know, the bully football player, right? Because that's a way to express it in your life through relationships. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I really like that. And I think, you know, maybe think about how you could have a 50-50 mix between those things. Like they could exist equally in your body. But because if your incentive structure where it's like, oh, you're a big, strong black guy who, who runs super fast, like put all your energy into this. And I assumed that like for at least a decade or more, you were conscious of the other side being like held back and not having an outlet for expression and that there was nobody like, did you have any friends that were looking at you going like, man, there's something else here that like you should like explore and express yourself outside of football. I had a, I had a couple, but okay. it was like the whisper, right? Yeah. A couple of them, but the voices from everyone else were so loud, it was hard to even recognize and acknowledge. And yeah. one of the things, you know, we know about cannabis is is we we love the female plant we love yeah. you know because that there is a feminine oh, reflective right we, we consume cannabis you become more sensitive right you notice things in the music you notice things in the food you notice things in other people right that you didn't notice before why because you're more the feminine side is more the more sensitive reflective side is turned on yeah you know i i had never thought about it that way and like with those terms i would agree with everything you said and i never thought about like the connection between the female flower and the the veering into uh, you know a feminine energy for the purpose of you know then reflecting at your own self from a distance more, but I do think that's a very accurate you know a- analogy. Um, what do you got here for me? You want to open this up on on camera? Allow me to. Yeah, go okay. open it. Yeah. So. Oh wow. So we have Helix. This is it's a one hitter. It's a fancy one. Nice. Hitter. Oh. I love these. There's a uh, we got post game. And uh, by the way, I love the branding of Heisman. <laughs> I was hearing you talk about your um, like the fact that you made your school email as a freshman, like Heisman 1995. It, or was, something. it was Heisman at UTexas.edu. Okay. Yep. This Heisman. He just called it, right? Yep. So I don't feel like that's such a unique thing to be able to do. Like, you know, you're the only <laughs> seemingly, <laughs> you know, obviously nobody else had taken that email. So, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, it was the, the joke I tell, and especially when I'm talking to younger people, yeah. joke I tell is I was, was in the, here, was in the computer that. lab and, and the, the head of the computer lab said, we need to create email addresses. And this yeah. was 1995. And I raised my hand and yeah. I said, what's email? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I probably would have been around this, you know, the same thing. It was like, you know, five or six years later, like everybody had an email, but at that time you're like, what is this yeah. used for? Even still, it was still AOL. So it was like, shh, you got yeah. mail. 
looking up porn and trying to hide the modem sounds. Like, <laughs> what's going on up there? Nothing. This is all really cool. And I've, I have uh, smoked some of this already. Um, I, I got a, a care package before and I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed our conversation today. I really hope that you, you know, can continue to serve as a role model because um, I do think there are probably so many people in a position like yours, maybe not at the, you know, the pinnacle of the sport, but like I know through the coaching that I've done, um, I love finding a guy who's like, oh, you're on the wrestling team, you're on the football team, and like something about what I'm doing connects, and you're like, oh, but I really want to, you know, I want to make videos or whatever, do this thing, and I like it's so meaningful to me to be able to like, you're like, oh, here's, here, let me show you this, read this book and, and try to put them on the path. And sometimes it does just take like that one interaction. I don't need to be your mentor for the rest of your life, but you can spark an idea or put somebody like onto something yes. that has a lifelong impact. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, you know, I was, I was talking to my analyst yesterday and we were talking about like the conversion moment. You know, I, mm -hmm. I grew up in a very Christian household and, like on the road to Damascus, you know, uh -huh. and we all have this moment where something, I call it magical, something unexplicable shows up and it's like proof that there's more to life than we've known. And yeah. it like sets us on this, this journey to figure it out. Yeah. You know, and that's what I want to be. I want to spark that moment for people where they realize there's a lot more going on. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. You could be the inciting incident. And I know in some of your interviews, this is something that I think about and talk about a lot is like hand in hand with the Jungian stuff and the archetypes is story moments. And you know, that, you know, for example, you referenced, uh, you know, being in the belly of the whale as Jonah. And, and I do think that most people could benefit from learning more about story in general and what these, like, his, like, are, you know, ancient stories and archetypes and all those things, because that helps you put your own, like, you figure out where you're at in the broader and mythology. Yes, yes, you know I mean? that is it. That is you know? it. That's it. Because without that, it's like, oh, I'm, oh, my God, this is a crisis. But if you can have the perspective, like, no, this is this moment. Yes. And then you can see, well, I'm one beat away from <laughs> That's it. We, we thing, need you know? that. Otherwise, we, we lose context. You know, when I was in my darkest moment, you know, after I retired the first time in 2004, I remember sitting there and then something hit me, like, all the movies I watched, you know, yeah. there's that point in the movie where the, the protagonist is like in the shit, but you know, they're going to come out on the other side. Yeah. And I just realized I'm just in that moment in the shit. Yeah. And I connected to the story and I had this faith that I'm going to come out on the other side. Yeah. And that gave me the ability to trust the process and just go for it. Yeah. Because in that movie moment, you know, it's really effective that dark night of the soul. If you're watching and going, I don't know how he's going to get out of this. But there's always a way. It's like, but it's, you know, you have to wait for like, oh, no, I can, oh, if I put the ladder here and climb out of this pit, like, it has to be something that's not obvious. You have to feel like, this is it. I'm done. It's over. I reached for this goal. I overextended. I fell all the way down into the snake pit, and here I am going to die. Yeah. You know, like, you should have that feel. Or, yes. like, if you're watching a movie, it's not, the third act doesn't matter unless, you know, if it's like, oh, I'm here, but, oh, uh, here's the ladder, and I can already get out. It's meaningless. So you really have to feel like, you know, you're hopeless and in and, and despair. Uh -huh. And and so hearing that and that you had moments like that, you know, and that you still were able to come out of it, you know what I mean? And yeah. find that happy ending, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. You know, the, the place in our brain that activates intuition is mm -hmm. right next to the place that activates despair. You know? Interesting. And, and so in the Christian myth, 
you know, Jesus dies on the cross, he goes to hell, and then he ascends to heaven. Yeah. And we, you right. know, in our, the common cliche, you know, everyone wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die. Right? <laughs> it's just this moment where we embrace the dark side. Yeah. Right? We embrace it and we like feel the, the gravity of the moment. And there's that space of there must be a way. Yes. That's the magic moment that opens the way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that I don't want to keep too much of your time. I think that's a great place to end on if you're okay with that. Yes. Yeah. No, because seriously, I think if people are watching that, like I've talked about this before when people are going through really dark times and I've been there before. And it, if you don't have maybe that voice saying things like that, you know, people get suicidal because they go, I don't see the way out. You know what I mean? And, and they, they, don't know how to trust the process or don't know how to go, well, I know, I know where I am and this, I have no hope, but maybe if I, you know, continue searching for a solution, it'll come. And so I hope that, you know, even just that will serve as an inspiration to somebody going through a really rough time where right now you feel like you can't find your way out of this abyss. Uh, but to know that other people have been there before and you've been there on the, the biggest world stage and, and, you know, felt the depths of that and still emerge from it. I think that will be inspiring to many people. Yep. That's it. All right. Yep. Well, thank you again. It's great thank having you. you. Yeah, this was great. Talk to you again in the future, in yep. the near future. Yeah. I'll be around. Part two. Yeah. <laughs>